This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. I am here with Rich Whitehouse, who is the creator of an Atari Jaguar emulator, somebody who works with the Video Game History Foundation and a whole bunch of other things. So how are you doing, Rich? Pretty good. How are you? Good. Um, did I say your name right? I never get anybody's name right. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, Rich Whitehouse. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> First time for everything. Um, so, I mean, you know, I guess we uh, we probably should start out by addressing the badass elephant in the room. You have a pretty gnarly looking scar right there. So um, uh, you just got out of surgery and it looks successful, I assume? Uh, yeah, yep. I'm, I'm still here and talking to you. So it was successful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, you know, still kind of recovering. Um, throat's still pretty, pretty tight. And uh, we're still waiting on news for some biopsies. But otherwise, you know, doing good. So, um, you know, I would normally never ask this, but you've posted publicly, you've been open about this, you seem to be transparent like I am about stuff like this. So it's the only way, yeah. only reason I'm jumping and going right there and asking, would you I mind just giving that. people like a quick overview of what happened that people might not be following you on social media or anything? Yeah, so um, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer um, back on, I think like around October 5th or so. And um, so I, I've actually had like symptom onset for this thing like three years ago, and it's taken a really long time of just, you know, going to my doctor and saying, hey, you know, and I explicitly have said for like the past year, there's something wrong with my thyroid. I actually went and got one of those um, thyroid kits, an actual panel, do a full blood panel. Um, all my hormone levels and everything were normal, which, you know, finding out after the fact, that's actually pretty typical if you do have thyroid cancer. So if your primary doctor is like, oh, no, all your levels are normal, you're fine. Um, that doesn't mean you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, what were your so, symptoms for anybody that might be going down the same road? Like, what were your symptoms? What was happening to you? So the the initially um, around three years ago, I first started noticing just like a tightness in my throat around here. It felt kind of like there was some pressure on here. Um, doctors immediately wrote it off as, oh, it's just anxiety, you know, that type of thing. Um, I started having actual like pain when trying to lift heavy objects. Um, actually moving my step kids out here is the first time I really noticed it when I went to lift something up like, oh my God, it feels like I just got stabbed in the throat. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty insane that it did take this long to actually get it diagnosed. And it was during the scan, the radiologist, um, they were, they were actually scanning my mouth because this thing had started, you know, metastasizing 
Um, probably, like we're still kind of waiting on evidence of where it's metastasized and how, but I was having, I've got like a lump in my mouth and they were doing a scan for that and it happened to cover this area. And the radiologist is like, has anybody looked at your thyroid? Because uh, you got to like, something's really wrong down there. <laughs> but, you know, that's yeah. that's not the slightest bit uncommon. My, uh, my best friend, um, he went in for stomach issues and they said, uh, his pancreas had problems because he drank too much and he, it didn't make sense because he was one of those like go to the bar every night, have a beer type. That's not, you know, it's not drink yeah. too much. It's not kill your pancreas at 40, drink too much. And right. it, sure enough, it was pancreatic cancer and he died very shortly afterwards. And, uh, you know, not to sound right. cold hearted, but if they did their jobs the first time, it's not like he would have lived for, you know, another 20 years. But same thing yeah. with my dad. They went in. Oh, maybe uh, you might have leukemia. Nah, you don't have leukemia. A couple months later, he dropped in a supermarket and, uh, you know, and then made it, hung on a couple more months, but that was it. But, and, you know, even me, like I had a couple of medical problems. I had a wrist got messed up and a doctor looked me dead in the eye and said, you're lying. There's nothing wrong with you. And it's people like you that are why medical insurance is too high. And I said some very unkind things, found yeah, a doctor that gave me an MRI and they said, you don't have an injury. You have two injuries that's why nobody believed you what you're describing doesn't really make sense unless you have two so you know yeah. it's gross so that's kind of why i'm happy i'm a bit of an asshole because i had no problem just saying no not not screw me screw you i'm going to find another doctor so. yeah yeah that is definitely the right thing to do it's a good call so glad you're here so upset to hear that that's took a couple of years to find that but yeah ugh. Well, at least from the time of actual diagnosis to now, it was only two months, right? So they jumped right on that. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is um, the ENT that initially found this referred me to a surgeon he works with. And so they did a biopsy. They said, yeah, you know, there's like an 80% chance or whatever that it's cancerous. These things are usually right. But they still needed to actually remove half the thyroid and then, you know, chop it up, do the actual in-depth analysis um, and so they scheduled me all the way out to November for my first surgery. I was like, hell no, you know, yeah, I'm pretty convinced at this point myself that it's cancerous because I'm feeling all these symptoms and everything points to it. And so I actually had to go out of my way and find a surgeon that could you know, immediately jump on the surgery. She's like, yeah, I'll get it done within the next week. And, um, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's the state of, you know, the medical system. You, you really, you need to be your own advocate. You need to, you know, go out of your way to get things taken care of or you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do understand skepticism when it's like, oh, you know, my pinky hurts. Can I please have 200 Oxycontin? Like, yeah, that I understand a hundred percent. Be skeptical. But, you know, when you're not asking for anything other than what's wrong with you, it should be taken a lot more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. What's um, what's the future look like with half a thyroid? Is it just you know manage your food and oh, stay well, healthy, um, or is it the the whole thing's actually gone now? So that that first surgery was back on September twenty eighth, and then this most recent one, they you know they properly diagnosed it. They said, oh, you have follicular cancer with vascular invasion. Going to take the rest of the thyroid, and so that was the most recent surgery. They took the rest of the thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm on um, levothyroxin, you know, every day for the rest of my life. I mean, it, basically generate those uh, thyroid hormones. Hmm. I mean, yeah, on the one hand, I'm very sorry you're going through this. On the other hand, it's awesome that you're saying things like 
just going to take a pill for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I'm, it's obviously not as easy as that. I'm clearly not diminishing what you're going through, but it's so much better than like, probably won't see you next year. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, to be honest with you, I have no idea. <laughs> oh. You know, I've, I've always had, you know, a pretty, pretty dark sense of humor, morbid sense of humor. You know, I, I laugh at the absurdities of life and stuff like that. And so I think, that's actually helping me a lot to get <laughs> to get through this stuff. It's just like kind of sitting back and being like, "Yep, this is life, all right." You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I've always had a weirdly dark sense of humor, and it's it's what's kept me so freaking jolly and happy. And it's just, yeah. you know, luckily my 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 real friends understand that, and they're patient with me when sometimes I say stupid shit in the wrong time. And, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I really found it, I really found it the right way. When I was uh, taking care of my friend with leukemia, we were, he's, he was Mr. Peace and Love, Mr. Everybody Get Along, nobody say anything bad. He was kind of amused by my assholiness. And the one time I saw him lose his shit, we were in the hospital, and we're just like, we're hanging out, we're watching TV, and like a 50-year-old couple dressed like clowns comes in, and they did the whole, like, hello like he looks at me and he goes get the fucking clouds out the room get the fucking clouds i was absolutely losing it i'd never seen him upset like that before clouds so yeah it's uh it's one of my oddly enough i I loved that dude we were friends for like 15 plus years one of my happiest memories was watching him freak out at some weird clowns in a hospital yeah that's great yeah well on a Uh, I'm very glad that you took the time to do this when you're recovering. Um, I have a bunch of weird stuff going on in my life, so this might not actually go out for another month, but uh, I want to talk about happy stuff and your work and the stuff that you've (laughs) you've done. And if you want to make any dark jokes that you want, go right ahead. Anybody who's offended by that could fuck right off. Now now that we've depressed all the viewers sufficiently, you know, it's... uh... Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well... Um, so what do you want to start with? The pretty badass out of nowhere Atari Jaguar emulator, your work with the Video Game History Foundation, or anything else? I mean, honestly, man, it's kind of your pick. Um, I'm open to talking to pretty much anything that you'd like. Well, you're the guest, but I think it's easiest just to start with the emulator because that's pretty, you know, your work is not cut and dry, but what it is, is pretty cut and dry. It's a software emulator that is the first one that does that plays successfully the whole Jaguar library. But you didn't just do that. You took it a couple of steps further to add stuff that you absolutely cannot do on original hardware, which is my personal favorite part of all kinds of software or FPGA emulation. Yep. Yep. Like so how did all that start? <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, writing a Jaguar emulator has actually kind of been on my bucket list for you know, many years now. Um, and that's just kind of as a product of, I didn't actually own one back when the first, the system first came out. Um, I wanted one, you know, I remember really wanting to try Kasumi Ninja out, um, <laughs> for better or for worse, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I, I didn't have, uh, you know, really any money back then. My parents didn't have any money, so I had to be kind of selective about my video gaming habits. And one year I was kind of lamenting to my wife, you know, I, I wish I'd had a chance to really check out the Jaguar because I didn't own one back then. And it's actually like one of the only consoles I still haven't really played around with. And so she got me a Jaguar for Christmas that year. And, uh, <laughs> you know, then I started kind of playing around with it. Um, it's still lamenting like the lack of emulators that could really give me a good experience there to kind of just play and enjoy the library. It 
at full full quality, really, you know, not not encountering bugs and just having a real uh, kind of true to life experience with it. And you know, I really want to play around with the games more, you know, enhance them uh, where where possible. And so that 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 landed it on my bucket list, um, which doesn't necessarily mean a project's ever going to get done. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I was very fortunate to have the need for it actually come up on Atari Fifty. And so you know, we we're discussing early on what can we include in this, what platforms can we include, and the Jaguar came up, and I was like, you know, um, doing a Jaguar emulator under real con- uh, production constraints frightens me and yet you know i really really want to do this and make it work and so we we basically um took it on initially as kind of an exploratory thing i spent a month just researching um getting all the information i could starting and like i I ended up actually starting the new emulator in that time because it only took about a week to be like yeah we're not going to be able to really use any existing solutions here and I'm going to have to do a whole bunch of independent research. And so I'm just So gonna... could I just interrupt you for a moment? And could you yeah. explain who we are um, for oh, anybody yeah. that doesn't stop following you? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I didn't make that clear. Uh, Digital okay. Eclipse would be <laughs> uh, Digital Eclipse and myself. Um, I'm a contractor. Uh, would be the we in this this context. And um, So Digital Eclipse is, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, a company that does some software compilations as well. They do a lot of, they do video games, but they're known for some of their emulation-based compilations, for better or worse. And uh, the Atari 50 is absolutely for the better. Everybody I know, and when I say everybody yeah. I know, I mean all of my hardcore OCD, you know, <laughs> analyst friends, uh, they all say excellent things about it. And I guess you're a contractor there, not like a, you know... Yep full-time so they contract you for help and they they asked you what you thought about doing this and um and so was adding jaguar games always part of your plan for atari 50 or was it just hey let's do you know the atari collection and let's see if we could stick this on or something yeah it was um so like you know early on um kind of when the project was first forming we had that discussion of you know can we do this and do we want to do this and so like I'd say for the first month or so, it was a little like, you know, we're not sure. We're going to see if I can actually get this emulator up and make it work. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the end of that month, I did, I had Tempest 2000 running um, ju- just about as you see it. Uh, and so I was incredibly happy with the progress there. And I just dove and I'm like, yeah, we're going to we're gonna take it all the way. I'm going to make, you know, the de facto Jaguar emulator now. <laughs> so I got to ask because that is... You know, Tempest 2000, I remember my cousin Scott kept telling me, oh, you got a, you know, you finally got a Jaguar again because we had one for a minute as a kid. Um, did you try Tempest? I'm like, nah. He goes, oh, you have to try it. You have to play it. You have to get the spinner controller. And I got all of it. And the first time I ever played Tempest 2000 was with the spinner controller and everything. And, you know, Nick mm-hmm. Persane did the mod for me. And I remember sitting there going, yeah, it was neat. It was pretty cool. And I looked at the clock and like an hour had gone by. <laughs> Oh, wow. I guess I like that a lot more. So did you have spinner controllers in mind when you were doing it? Is there a fe- you know any kind of feature I, that you could ex- uh, access that? Yeah, I definitely um, you know had the rotary controller in mind and my independent uh, emulator does support it. but uh, people you know people have been asking for mouse support and there is a known issue with actually using native hardware with uh, the what's it called? The Jaguar adapter, I believe, um, mm-hmm. because it's not, you know, pulling at the correct frequency. And there's inherently some difficulties in passing that stuff through to um, like a USB adapter because of the latency and the intervals and all that. And we'll get into the technical details. But yeah, 
uh, definitely had it in mind. And the way the independence uh, emulator supports it is actually by translating uh, analog intensity to rotary phase. So you can use like an Xbox controller and it'll actually map that into uh, like the Tempest rotary controller, which um, is the way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I play because I still don't actually have a rotary controller. <laughs> I oh, still need we'll to, to order or, for or make one or something, you know. But uh, yeah, um, the the Jaguar adapter uh, guy uh, Tom, I believe is his name, has been uh, kind enough to actually ship one of them to me. So I'm awaiting that, and I'm going to do some testing and um, actually try to make it work on hardware. Um, make the hardware work with the emulator. Sorry. That that is awesome. So how does one just say? I want to make a Jaguar emulator. I mean, you obviously have to have programming experience to start with, but even with that, like, how do you just go about doing that one day? Like, what are the first initial steps into going down that road? Yeah, so that, I guess that was especially interesting for me because I've been reverse engineering video games for, you know, many years now, you know, over a decade, I guess. Um, And so I kind of built that skill set of, like, knowing all the low level fundamentals, you know, having good hardware knowledge as well as, um, you know, pretty broad, high level software knowledge. And I, I felt pretty confident that I, you know, had the skill set necessary to do this, but I'd never actually, um, I guess, afforded the opportunity cost to sit down and write an emulator before. So this was actually the first time that I just, you know, did everything from scratch and, um, you know, that, I guess that was kind of a bit scary, but it, it didn't take very long for me to kind of hit my stride there and realize that uh, I was going to be able to, you know, pull this off in a pretty um, nice and thorough way, I guess you'd say. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I don't know, it's over my head. I, I couldn't fathom doing stuff like that. I'm a, I'm a hardware person and like a technical project manager type of person so it's uh, digging into the software side of things at that level is way way yeah. over my head like I, I don't know how in depth you want me to go like i could itemize like the different uh, technical blocks and like aspects of the jaguar and like how tasking breaks down and stuff but yeah it's probably not very fun <laughs> i think that, you know first of all talk about whatever you want to but i do think my general audience that listens to these are are at a nerdy level where they appreciate everything except the super deep details. And while there absolutely are programmers on here that are going to be listening that would wish that I would do that, I feel like that's the, uh, I feel like that's the happy medium. So if you want to give like a technical overview of that, because, you know, anybody, even people that know nothing about programming that have been following the retro scene, especially if you 
grew up and you're an old man like I am and you saw the, is it really a 64-bit machine? Is it 232 bits? What about the, why do so many games look equal to or worse than 16-bit? Oh, it's because they used the 68K to run the whole game rather than just tie it. So it's, there's all this lore about how the Jaguar works or doesn't work and why there's so much stuff on there that didn't even look remotely close to how good it was supposed to. So if you want to talk about any of that and and how that applies, I I think that's kind of universal in the Jaguar community. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess the, the thing in my mind that really, you know, crippled the poor beast is, (laughs) is the, uh, bus contention. And so what, what that comes down to is, you know, you have a shared memory bus and you have, um, things competing, to basically access that bus and, you know, get access to the memory. So you've got the 68K, you've got the GPU, you've got um, the blitter. And those are those things are usually in contention with each other because while the blitter is putting stuff into the frame buffer, stuff that the stuff that the uh, object processor is actually going to, you know, put up for you to see, um, that that's basically stalling out the 68K and the GPU anytime they want to actually access memory. And they made they made a few uh, fundamental decision decisions that made that kind of a problem. Um, one of those things is also the lack of local RAM for the GPU to work with. And so, uh, the GPU has a small amount of local RAM, and it also has to operate all of its code or you know execute all of its code inside that RAM. Um, largely due to a hardware bug that causes all kinds of problems and chaos if you try to uh, execute GPU code out of main RAM. And people have jumped through some interesting hoops to try to make that work reliably, and there's been some success with it. Um, of course, you also eat a lot of penalty executing code out of main RAM, so you know it's got uh, trade-offs as well. But the entire retail library just executes code out of um, this tiny little bit of GPU RAM, and there really isn't enough to do something like um, kind of in a Nintendo 64-esque way, um, if anybody's familiar with TMEM, uh, you could potentially have stored like textures in that memory, that GPU local memory, allowed the blitter to operate out of that, uh, would have been you know massively faster than having the blitter have to uh, both fetch textures from main RAM and write to a frame buffer in main RAM. And that usually ends up being um, what holds most games back is they're just, you know, the blitter has to do so much with main RAM and it just stalls everything else out while that's happening. Hmm. And did you find the documentation on, uh, it's the Tom and Jerry chips for that one, right? Yep. Yeah. The uh, Tom chip uh, kind of encapsulates like the blitter uh, object processor and GPU. And then Jerry is uh, the DSP and, you know, some other generally input and audio related functionality. A lot of the time people just say, uh, Tom is a GPU and Jerry is a DSP, but to be you know, a Mr. Jaguar technical stickler over here, there, there's some encapsulation there. <laughs> um, and when you were programming for this, did you base it on existing documentation? Did you have to take original hardware and write your own code to run on it in order to, you know, to do packet sniffing? Did you yeah. use hardware? Because I, you know, I'm oversimplifying half for the audience and half because I'm not smart enough to, to go in, but you know, you see a lot of uh, developers with the, you know, the probes on different parts of the motherboards trying to see when signals are being received at what part of the bus. So did yeah. you have to dig into that as well? 
So I, I wrote like kind of um, the general foundation just using the um, JTRM, the Jaguar Technical Reference Manual. Um, and I, I link that on the FAQ on the, uh, the emulator page if anybody is interested in actually getting that information. And so that, that provided me with kind of like a, a loose foundation. And then from there, you know, there were tons of inaccuracies in that document, tons of things that were missing. Um, and so for all that stuff, I really just ended up writing a software test to run on the hardware. Um, I got pretty elaborate with that stuff in terms of um, tests giving me specific answers for particular bits of functionality for timing. And um, that, you know, that's really the foundation of what made the emulator, I'd say. And um, kind of kind of more interesting on that note is also, um, I ended up writing kind of like this weird debugging harness because uh, fortunately, even in the final retail silicon, there's functionality to be able to uh, basically like step those risk chips, the GPU and the DSP one instruction at a time. And so I ended up writing, um, I, I encountered a particularly heinous bug in Missile Command that inspired me to do this, but it ended up being useful for a whole bunch of other uh, bugs and games as well. Uh, I basically wrote a harness that would take a snapshot of RAM from the emulator, uh, take a game ROM, shove all of that into an actual ROM that would run on hardware. Um, and then basically I had some custom 68K, 68K code that would um, poke in, you know, copy everything where it needed to be um, at runtime, put the RAM in RAM, put, you know, uh, GPU memory and GPU memory and so on. And it would then just uh, step GPU code or DSP code or whatever from the state of the emulator on hardware. So when I encountered a difference in functionality or an emulator only bug or something like that, I could actually then step through on hardware and examine what was happening on the real thing and contrast that. And um, I encountered one bug that it wouldn't actually occur when I was stepping on hardware. And uh, I could go into the details of that, but basically it was because um, the pipeline for the Jaguar CPUs is insane. <laughs> and there's a thing called right after right hazard and uh, if you don't know what that is, you can Google it and, you know, be, be amazed. <laughs> hmm. Oh, man. So, um, I'm sorry, I had another question and then I got sucked into what you were saying and I completely <laughs> lost my train of thought. So it's a, it's a good kind of spacing out, I guess. But um, so it sounds like when it sounds like you just described that you basically wrote a save state function almost first so that you could restore from that state and troubleshoot each of these spots individually. And that's exactly what Robert Peep does, the uh, the creator of the PlayStation FPGA core, as well as the Game Boy Advance and a bunch of other things. I interviewed him a while back, and his his Patreon posts are fascinating. You know, it's, <laughs> They're all a little over my head, but he writes them well enough so I could still understand them. So it, it's kind of funny to see two developers going about things two totally different things and from a, a similar perspective. And I thought that was, that's yeah. kind of neat to hear you say that. Yeah. Especially considering I, I'm totally, you know, disconnected from all these same people and communities and stuff like that. Um, you know, I just kind of like started dipping my foot in there, um, started a discord for the emulator stuff like that, which has been really nice to, you know, meet all these different people who've been developing for the Jaguar for so long. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's always fascinating to me how, um, completely different people in different situations end up, you know, making the same conclusions and coming up with the same, you know, analytical approaches to things. I've encountered that a lot in the reverse engineering community as well. 
Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's such good people in the retro community. I mean, it's very easy to go into the wrong Discord server or the wrong <laughs> forum and get the wrong impression. But, you know, it, yeah. it's just really a whole ton of good people. And I've met, you know, I've met people, too, in real life at some events and stuff where it's like, oh, how are they going to be? They're kind of harsh in their posts. And you meet them and the same exact words out of their mouth in front of you are oddly welcoming and friendly but you read them on a forum and you're like what a douche but it's yeah. like <laughs> so it's you know it, but it's also one of those things where you know I, I grew up around grumpy nerds doing it stuff so it's i'm kind of just used to that and i, I kind of just continue the conversation and there's a lot of really awesome people out there and a lot of awesome people that it takes a minute before you realize that they're awesome but they are so yeah uh, I've definitely, you know, mellowed out in my old age myself. And so <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I, I think that people tend to read a lot of what I say in, in the, you know, probably their own harsh internal voice, because I do the same thing with other people as well. And then when you actually, like you're saying, talk to the person, it's like, put put some human, uh, you know, emphasis behind those words, things come across completely differently. Really, you always came across so friendly, because I don't, remember directly interacting with you i we wrote a couple of posts about some of the work that you did so there yeah. might have been there but like even just seeing your posts and seeing your stuff you never came across as harsh or anything like that well that's good i appreciate that thank you <laughs> i mean don't thank me if i thought you were a dick i'd say that too <laughs> but, uh, i am the dick actually that's my email ah, address, so. <laughs> technically technically you are 100 percent correct in that one but Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so i mean you get it. How long from the time where you just decided, okay, I have to do this till the time that it was in basically the state that it was for Atari 50? So, yeah, I'd say it took about three months to, um, you know, from start to actually get that's impressive. The core. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> to get, uh, get the core where it was playing all the cartridge library and everything like that. And uh, that, that's basically what chipped an Atari 50 at that point. And after that, um, because, you know, I, I've already told the Digital Eclipse guys, uh, in particular, Mike Mike and Stephen Cross, hey, you know, uh, writing this thing is on my bucket list, and I'd really actually like to be able to continue, you know, developing and working on it after this project. And so that's why you see a public release of the emulators, because we kind of, you know, planned for that and made sure that we would be able to release it in some capacity and that I'd be able to continue working on it. And so as soon as I finished the core for Atari 50, I started working on uh, like the actual standalone aspects of the emulator, the whole framework that you see in the release and, you know, the various systems and um, a nice little tool for uh, translating RetroArch shaders to my own post-processing system and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, big, big props to Digital Eclipse for that because they would be 100% within their right to say, we paid for this. This is ours. You're never allowed yeah. to show it to anybody. We're going to use it on another compilation and that's it. And the fact that they they just said, yeah, go ahead is just, you know, it kind of shows they do care about games and the history and the gamers, not just the bottom line. Yep, absolutely. And that is, you know, and I, I, I say this with, um, you know, great, uh, I wouldn't say reservation, but that I wouldn't say this about most of the people in the game industry that I've worked for, but these guys are really genuinely great. So, <laughs> um, so when you were doing the Atari 50, did you have to modify this for every single console or are you using like a, that engine I think they were talking about that kind of makes it easier to port through? Like, are you allowed to talk about that? If I'm, if I'm crossing an NDA line, uh, you know, I apologize. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty okay to talk about. Um, they have their own engine called BakeSale. Mm-hmm. And so that handles like kind of all the different platform interfaces and stuff. So from my perspective, um, the core, to, you know, has per platform code and it's got, you know, different platforms that it can work on. And so one of those platforms is actually just called BakeSale. And that, you know, interfaces, threads and input and all that other stuff directly to those bake sale systems to do that. And so um, I didn't have to actually write like, you know, down down in the guts, like threading code or input code or anything like that for those platforms, because that's basically where bake sale picks up and handles that stuff. And have you had the opportunity or I guess a better question is in this process of making a video game that's now you're no or being sold to the public at what uh, what part of your mentality when making this was latency and in, in mind as well as accuracy because obviously accuracy was important to you otherwise it wouldn't have played the whole library but you know yeah. is latency on your mind when you're doing this and are you testing as you go yep yeah absolutely it is uh, always you know at the forefront of my concerns and i always do like everything i can to try to minimize that kind of stuff um I, I came up with some interesting solutions there for, um, you know, running the emulator on a separate thread, uh, pulling as soon as it needs inputs, um, things of that nature. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's always um, a concern. And, uh, of course, you know, software emulation um, is never going to have, um, like, the absolute bare minimum of input latency. There's only so much we can do. And then, you know, all the systems that we're working with take over and they inherently introduce some latency from uh, controller inputs to, you know, whatever the protocol of your controller's interface is to actual display latency um, from actually, you know, turning through the frame loop and getting that emulated frame up to the time it takes the display to actually display that stuff. And, you know, there's an entire pipeline of latency that I'm always considering, but I try to do whatever I can on my part to minimize the time between I pulled your input and I am now putting the resulting frame up on the screen. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's gotta be a trade-off. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions of the work that I do is that I'm this elitist that says, if it's not zero frames of lag, you should never play it. And it's just, you know, I think the perfect example is the Genesis mini one and two The Genesis, both of them have beautiful boxes and beautiful cases and, you know, beautiful interfaces and they're very cool and they draw you in. But the first one's three to seven frames, three to seven frames of variable latency. So it's just you. I've heard a couple of people say, oh, but I didn't feel it. I I completed some games out out of luck then out of of luck. (laughs) Whereas the Genesis Mini 2 was, I believe it was two to three frames, which is perfectly reasonable if you put that into context right you buy this little box or in the case of atari 50 you buy a game for a console that you already own that's already connected to your tv where you don't have to worry about fumbling with roms and button mapping on controllers which is a huge pet peeve of mine and you know getting configuration you you put a disc in your console and you play or download it or however you get it and there's going to be a lot said for that but there it does very much surprise me when I talk to people in the industry how many times I hear things like, well, I knew it had a lot of latency, but you know the customer demanded a fancy UI, so it was the trade-off. 
will say no. Yeah, you know, you have to. There has to be a point. Like, if you make a car where you're like, yeah, you know, if you hit it at this angle, it's going to explode into flames. But you know, it's cheaper to do it this way. You no, know, you have. You're going to say no. How are people going to play a game that's unplayable? And I think I've seen that quite a bit with software compilations. And seeing the praise for this one made me very happy because it was obvious that some serious thought was put into this. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely a pet peeve of mine when people neglect, you know, input latency. Uh, Vsync and Terrain is another big one, my lord. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, the general frame responsiveness. Um, and uh, I, I, not too long ago, I went into a whole thing about um, the uh, the approach they took in the FromSoft games for, you know, doing Vsync and their attempt to kind of minimize input latency, but also having, you know, horrible stuttering and tearing as a, as a result of that. And so, um, but not to go too much into that stuff, but yeah, that stuff is always, you know, on the forefront of my mind, whatever I'm working on, you know, either a, something like this or just a normal, you know, video game title. Well, that is excellent to hear as a, as a fan <laughs> of this stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, you now have a Patreon uh, that I'm a proud supporter of that is basically you. allowing you to continue work on this emulator. Um, you've yeah. kind of talked about things that you would like to do, some some pipe dreams of, oh, wouldn't it be nuts if we... Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about... You know, I, I don't I don't mean to like force promotion on you here, but I'd like <laughs> to hear how, how, how monthly you. support oh. <laughs> services might allow you to have more time to do this. Because I do think there's an unfortunate amount of people that still call anybody with a Patreon, a millennial living in their parents' basement, wanting to get paid for a basket weaving <laughs> hobby. I've been, I've been told that many times by people I respect. So uh, you oh, and I know nice. what that's <laughs> like, but maybe we can help educate people that still are on the fence about that. Yeah, so... Um... You know, first I should say I've been just amazed by the the support and the amount of patrons I have so far. I've got fifty people giving me seven hundred dollars a month at this point, which is way beyond my initial expectations. You know, I figured I'd be lucky to get to a hundred. So, awesome. so th- thank you so much to all those people. That is, you know, genuinely shocks and warms me at the same time. I really appreciate that, and um, so. My, my plan for that is basically, you know, it's, it's always a trade-off um, time that I have to spend working on contracts versus time that I have to spend or time that I can spend working on things I want to work on. And so $700 a month has actually, you know, gone into the territory of this is now meaningful money that I can use to live on um, partially. You know, nobody can, uh, well, nobody should have to or can in most parts of America live on $700 a month, but <laughs> it's still, you know, that's a meaningful contribution towards my mortgage and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, that that's definitely going to enable me in the future. And, you know, I've already started prioritizing. I'm going to actually start working on Jaguar CD stuff now. And I'm kind of juggling that with potential contract work and, um, again, Digital Eclipse has been great there. They're like really flexible about um, the way that we structure contracts and time that I can spend working uh, for them versus, you know, obviously surgery and recovery and then they're working on my own stuff. You know, um, the, the way that things have kind of worked out there has been really nice and flexible. And um, again, like 
those guys are always just always doing uh, the right thing, basically. And it's, that's, that's the best way I can put it. There, there's never a moment where they're like, oh, no, you need to work for us and do what we say in this order now. You know, it's, it's always very, very nice. Everybody's courteous and respectful. And um, that that's really the, you know, the best environment that I could hope for to be able to juggle uh, professional contracting stuff that pays the bills with stuff that I want to actually be working on now and that I now have an actual community behind me to support me in working on, which is, you know, amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Jag CD is something that I, I'm, I'm really happy to see because, you know, I think it's easy for people who kind of see some of the funny videos of making fun of the Jaguar to just think it's all trash. And there are some garbage games on there. Absolutely. I think oh, we yeah. all understand that. But <laughs> there's also some really cool stuff too. And the Jaguar homebrew community is, Oh, man, I'm gonna get. I'm sure I'm gonna get just trolled to hell for saying this, but it's really split between people that that just port something over to the 68k so that they could sell you a fancy box, which drives me crazy. But whatever. And then there's another group of people that just are fascinated by what could have been done on that platform, and that's the the homebrew that I absolutely love. And you know, I met Vlad in person a couple of years ago. I got to talk to him for a little while. He's exactly how you would expect. I enjoyed that conversation, and you know, I, it's. I'm really interested to see what the community of game makers can do if more people have access to Jaguar CD stuff. Because, yeah. you know, right now at the moment, I think the only really sort of reliable way to get it would be original hardware with a game drive. And because there, there aren't really solid Jaguar CD emulation, software emulation solutions, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. And, um, you know, I, I, I haven't really tried out the game drive implementation too much. I think it's still a bit of a work in progress. So yes. I don't know if uh, everything is fully compatible, but... Um, no, and James himself was the one to say that. So that's not... We're not throwing yeah. insults around here. James was the yeah. first one to be like, no, no, it's still a beta. You know, use it yeah. as is for now. So uh, I honestly, I haven't checked lately, so I don't know what kind of progress has been made as well. But um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I actually was really fortunate to have somebody come forward I actually had three people offer to send me Jaguar CD units on the first day of the, the, the emulator's release, which I also absolutely did not expect. But um, I'm waiting nice. on one. He um, he sent his unit off to uh, for repair to uh, Crystal Lee. I believe she's pretty well known in the retro repairing community. And uh, once it, once it's actually repaired, they're going to send it my way so that I can actually you know basically do the same thing I did with the original hardware, write all my little tests, and get exact timing and measurements and you know, make emulation, uh, you know, nice and accurate through, uh, through that venue. Hmm. That's very exciting. I, I, I'm interested to, to, to see, you know, I, I spent some time playing Jag CD games, but I, I think, you know, it, 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 this is like the perfect forum, uh, the perfect forum for a software emulation setup where you could just kind of sit there and have a USB controller plugged into your PC and casually check some stuff out and then kind of make a note like, all right, you know, is there something that I really seriously want to play? Do I just want to absorb it myself? And so, yeah, that, yeah. that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, has anybody from the Mr. Team or anybody that works on the FPGA cores reached out to you at all? Yeah, um, Sentient Six, I believe was his name, reached out to me about uh, collaborating with those guys. And, um, uh, she is more of like, um, you know, I'm, I gotta, I'm gonna make sure I word this correctly. I consider myself a cheerleader for the Mister community. I don't program anything, so when I yeah. say Sentient isn't a programmer, she's more of a cheerleader. That's not an insult at all. Yeah, so. no, yeah, yeah. That, 
that meshes with uh, my experience talking to her. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it's um, you know, uh, so it's good that you interfaced with her. But I knew Risha did a bunch of work on an existing core, and I believe Otago said that he was looking into making another one as well. So it's you know a lot of great minds just, just you know between you three, there's some pretty amazing minds right there. So yeah, I um, I haven't actually talked to any of the developers. Um, basically, you know, um, I've considered getting into F FPGA development before myself. Um, definitely, like, not ruling it out or anything like that. Um, but I, I would be like, you know, I guess I should say also, you know, just just as a programmer, it appeals a little bit less to me because it's I I value the work they're doing incredibly, especially from a historical preservation perspective. Like it's super important they're actually you know making sure this hardware will live long past when it's alive and they're you know, preserving it in the most authentic and faithful way which is cannot cannot give enough props for that and that's that's great um but personally i think it's a lot more methodical and less creative to work on that stuff as a programmer and i really enjoy like the the high level approximation challenges of software emulation and you know figuring out ways to get these systems working on uh all kind of broad range of hardware, being able to do all these crazy enhancements that go like way above and beyond the capabilities of hardware, stuff like that. Uh, really enjoy it. Um, and so like, I, I see myself probably in the near future continuing to just focus on the software emulation side of things. Um, but I have considered, you know, dabbling in FPGA, getting into it. Um, but I think to actually ramp up and to be able to diagnose like the problems in the existing Jaguar Mr. Core and stuff like that would be pretty substantial time investment for me to actually be able to relate my findings to that and contribute there in a meaningful way. And so that that's basically what I told Sentient Six when she kind of reached out about, hey, would you be willing to come work on this stuff? And it's like, you know, I'd like to, but I think it would require a pretty sizable time investment for me to be able to contribute meaningfully. And so Yeah, you know, I kinda I kind of think of stuff like this almost exactly the way that you just said and like get, get great minds together. And if you're like, Oh, you know, I kind of like to do this thing instead. Cool. You know, we'll, we'll message rich. If we have a question about messing around with this, maybe you have some insight, but you know, yeah. I, I kind of love that there's groups of people working on this so that you don't have to feel the need to do one or the other. You could stay with the thing that you enjoy the most and you know, you're still available to just answer some questions and I'm sure vice versa. If the team had a question for you, you wouldn't mind helping out. So. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about your work with the Video Game History Foundation? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I could start from the origins um, however many years ago. I, have I, would, I would love that because there is definitely not clear information out there. And there's a lot of people that just know what you all do. So there's no yeah. questions. And then there's a lot of other people that go, what the hell do they do? <laughs> <laughs> which are both fair, right? You know, it's your job yeah. to, to preserve this stuff, not to be, you know, not to be public facing, you know, um, uh, press liaisons for what you're doing. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I got involved with them way back. Um, I think it was pretty near when Frank had founded the organization. I was talking to Mike Micah about, you know, wanting to contribute more to, um, actually applying like my reverse engineer, engineering skills more to doing like historical preservation type work and, you know, um, making sure that source code was properly buildable and preserved. And like uh, my, fir the first thing I ever did for them was like doing an, an official like curated preservation of the Aladdin source code. 
and out of that came the you know a uh, sizable public article kind of going through the that source code and like all of these things that were cut that I found in it and different you know unused graphics and stuff like that and um, so my role in the foundation uh, basically continued to be that like I I had um, initially kind of like this this side job of taking source code and just preserving it how we could at the time because we were still kind of you know getting up and running didn't have um, established protocols and what have you for that. Uh, they've actually hired a full-time librarian now, um, maybe even more than one. I'm not up to date on that, but uh, <laughs> the, you know, it, it's a, it's becoming more more proper on that front, or I should say, it is proper on that front now, as far as I know. But <laughs> um, but yeah, my my role in the foundation basically continued to be that where I would like kind of preserve stuff, take a look through it, see what we had there, see if it was actually in the case of source code properly buildable. Uh, if not, you know, I go searching for tools, sometimes write tools, write like Noasis scripts. For people not familiar, Noasis is like my Swiss army knife of reverse engineering. <laughs> it's got all kinds of functionality for that kind of stuff, um, interpreting data, you know. Um, but anyway, so my role continued to be doing that kind of stuff and do what was necessary to get things actually buildable. Make, and, I think that to some degree is actually necessary to know what you even have. You know, if you get source code for something, you don't know if it's a complete final retail source code for that thing. You don't know if it's like some incomplete development snapshot from some point in time. And um, so my goal in that stuff was also to, if we had source code, build it and then inspect the final binary, see if it resembled uh, retail. If it didn't, you know, I dig into why. Is it just something in the tool chain that I recreated that didn't authentically recreate the final binary? Or is there a meaningful difference in the source code? And um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I love doing that kind of work too. <laughs> it's really fun to you know get source code for a game, especially if it's a game that you know resonated with me personally or that I have you know some sentimental attachment to. To be able to dig through there, and um, that's all. That's also been the nature of like why I spend so much time reverse engineering games. I think is it it allows you to. Um, Get a different feel and sense of that game as well as you know potentially contributing meaningful historical findings and stuff like that yeah you know if anybody uh, anybody out there is a musician but not a software reverse engineer i think they <laughs> could completely put that into perspective because you know i, I want to play guitar i was in a band and stuff i'm a wannabe musician but learning other people's songs you don't yeah. you know if you're really getting it right you're not kind, you're not just learning the notes you're learning how they play it and it gives you a completely different perspective into how their music goes together and one yeah. of my favorite bands i remember it was 10 15 years ago but their new album came out and i kind of grabbed my guitar and i'm like all right they, you know they're in knee tuning and i'm playing along to a song that i had never heard before and i started playing the next part of the bridge the first couple notes of it exactly the way that, that they played it, even though I'd never heard the song before because I had been following this band my whole life. I'd learned yeah. all of their songs and I just kind of <laughs> knew that's where they were going to go with it because that's what they would do. And it just yeah. made me so happy. And I, I could completely, under, while being not a programmer, I could completely understand, you know, the joy you could get into taking a game that you love and, and figuring out how they made it work the way it does. And yeah. is that a decent analogy, you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that that's definitely like part of it is like understanding that developer's mindset, understanding, you know, the choices they made and why that really definitely is really fascinating and satisfying when you kind of put those pieces together. And the other aspect is just digging into the game itself, you know, 
getting to see all all the data that's under the hood and what's driving things and how. And for me, that can like it's actually uh, a much deeper experience with the game. Like if I spent a whole bunch of time as a kid playing the thing, I got a whole bunch of nostalgia for it. Now I actually get to dive in there and like see all the inner workings of it, and it's just like you know, it's kind of like. Uh, you know, I don't know what a good analogy is. A kid in the toy factory, being a kid in the toy factory again. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what, you know, I guess, is there any other, anything else you want to share about the video game history foundation? You know, you've done your VR work for the, the reverse engineering of that, which I just thought was the coolest freaking thing ever. <laughs> I remember following that as a kid. And I just remember thinking like, I loved the idea of playing Mortal Kombat with the Genesis activator. Remember when you <laughs> wave your hand over the thing yeah. with the VR yeah. helmet? And then yeah. I think even back then, talking with friends, it's like, but how how would that really work? Like yeah. when you do your moves, you're pressing your thumbs really quickly. Like, are you really going to be moving doing all these? And so yeah, getting to I, I see. Think I had, uh, yeah. Same yeah. discussions with my friends at the time. <laughs> yes. So getting to actually see it work and see, you know, see your work on that just made me really happy. Yeah. That, that was, you know, the, just the notion that you can, you know, take some software that was designed for some hardware that was never released and actually recreate that hardware experience. Just the notion of that to me is, you know, gives me warm, tingly feelings. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, seeing the opportunity for that and being like, hey, you know, this game actually fully implemented Sega VR, it looks like, and I can see, you know, what it intended to do with the hardware and recreate that in an emulator and then hook that up to a Vive headset and actually, like, create some semblance of uh, the original hardware experience, probably way nicer than the original hardware experience, but <laughs> yeah, just based on, you know, display capabilities and latency and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I suspect it would be much nicer than what they had at the time. But, uh, yeah. Can you imagine what they were using? I mean, in hindsight, I guess it would have been like two game gear screens, one for each eye. Right? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yep. yep. Oh man. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I love that stuff. That just makes me happy. Um, is there, has there been any other projects recently that, you know, for the history foundation you've worked on that you wanted to share things that maybe we missed that we probably, we probably should have been covering, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's all kind of a blur to me at this point. There, there was also a days of thunder thing we did. that was pretty cool. Um, we actually did you want to talk about that. I feel like I did cover it, but I mean, I've, I've written I thousands of posts at this point. So it is, I usually have a solid memory, but a lot of this stuff blurs into each other for me. Yeah. Well, it, it was basically um, in Chris Oberth's stuff. Uh, and Chris Oberth is a developer who worked on, um, uh, what was the company name? Do you recall? Can't recall at the I moment. I can see it. Sorry. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm running on no, lack of no worries. <laughs> yeah, no, I, my, again, like, you know, my brain is much fuzzier than it should be at this point, but uh, anyway, um, he had worked on uh, a bunch of commercial titles, so to say, and uh, he had um, the source code to an unreleased copy or un unreleased version of days of thunder um, and the stuff that we were, you know, going through um, because his loved ones had asked us to kind of like, basically see what was there, uh, figure out um, what, what what should be preserved out of all that stuff, because it was basically, you know, just his hard drives and 
uh, the stuff that he'd left. And so uh, we got uh, Days of Thunder for the NES compiling out of that, you know, built an actual usable game. And then we did a little limited run um, of actual NES cartridges. So we got one uh, sitting up on the shelf back there. Uh, and Frank Frank was um, you know, very, very kind enough to put on there. I think it says like preserved by Rich Whitehouse in 2021 or something, 2020 now. But, uh, you know, like it's like the movie poster copy of the box art and stuff so the nerd in me is just like very very pleased by that, <laughs> that is awesome yeah but, um, very cool yeah i've also um, got um oh, sorry i've got a, a little hardware project that i'm i've been working on for them as well but i i'm not i guess not really ready to announce it yet so <laughs> yeah no i don't ever want to put pressure on people for that because you know every time i talk to a developer even behind the scenes and messaging when I'm writing a post, I always just kind of remind them like, are you sure you want people to know about this too? Because then everybody's yeah. going to be asking you about it and what life happens. So if yeah. you're like, Oh yeah, it'll definitely be done by the end of the year. Now it's summer of the next year. And it's like, <laughs> Ugh. so yeah, I definitely, if you're not ready to release any info, hold on to it for a bit. Yep. So what, uh, have there been other games that you worked on, whether it's for digital Eclipse or anything else that, um, you know, that really stand out to you, things that you, you know, that you're very proud of or are or not very proud of, like anything, <laughs> anything that stands out. I probably have more, more stuff I'm ashamed of than I am proud of. So, hey, whatever, <laughs> whatever you feel like talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been uh, making video games for, geez, uh, 20, 25 years now, something like that. Um, you know, Raven Software plucked me, you know, fresh out of, you know, high school at like 17. Um, and I started working on uh, Jedi Knight 2 at that point. And uh, my my development experience on Jedi Knight 2, uh, I could probably go into for hours upon hours. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I I mean, I think that would be a, an overview of that would be wonderful. So, you know, you're young. This is the first game that you're working on. What, what platform was that? Uh, we were only doing the PC version. Uh, it was okay. ported to consoles by uh, Vicarious Visions um, kind mm -hmm. of after the fact, after basically finished development. Um, and so going into that, you know, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I, I was just a terrible, terrible programmer. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I started at Raven and they kind of like threw me into the deep end there because they kind of tossed me on to Jedi Knight 2 multiplayer and made me solely responsible for it. And I kind of was like working in a vacuum on that thing. Um, and Pat Lipa was supposed to be my lead at the time, but he had been pulled off onto uh, what, what eventually became X-Men Legends. And so uh, it was me and Jake Simpson initially, because Jake Simpson was the guy who did Ghoul 2, and Ghoul 2 is the skeletal animation system behind Jedi Knight 2 and Soldier of Fortune 2 and you know, those Raven games at the time. Um, and he was, you know, in the process of making the, all that stuff work with multiplayer and he was synchronizing joints over the network and stuff, which we didn't actually do a lot of that stuff. We ended up having se totally separate server client joint processes and blah, 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 PCJ. So anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so he, he, he and I were really the only two people on multiplayer initially. He was doing the tech stuff and I was kind of like, basically looking at single player code, trying to recreate it in multiplayer. And um, it was not long into that process, maybe like a month or two, I came into work and, you know, Jake wasn't there. So I went to Pat's office and I'm like, hey, 
um, you know, where's Jake? And Pat is like, oh, you can't really do Pat mannerisms. But anyway, um, <laughs> he's like, oh, nobody told you, uh, you know, Jake has been quitted. Uh, quitted is a term that I was introduced to at Raven. But anyway, um, you know, Jake was no longer at the company. And so basically it was just me on multiplayer for the next, I think, seven or eight months until Pat finally came back on at the like very end to help uh, make it more of a, you know, reasonable experience from the the horrible rat's nest that I had created, not knowing what I was doing. <laughs> and so that, that was basically, you know, my introduction into the video game industry. Um, it, it was simultaneously like, amazing and an honor to be able to work on a Jedi Knight game because I was already you know, a fan of Star Wars Jedi Knight at the time. And so, you know, I, I was blown away by that. But also it was a horrible, you know, nonstop death crunch experience. So, you know, weigh the two things. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. It's really, you know, trial by fire here, right? Yeah, uh, most definitely. <laughs> I, I kind of... I, I kind of love all those memories I have of stuff like that. And it just, I, I try not to do that to myself anymore. Although, you know, running, running your own business is absolutely that, right? You know, you it's every day is a trial by fire, but something of yeah. that magnitude, it's like it changes you as a person when you're done with it, you know? And oh, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. I always yeah. found it worth, mostly found it worthwhile, I guess is a better way to put it. You know, uh, it, there's some certain things I would have liked to have just not gone through, but stuff like that when you're young and you're learning, it's just kind of awesome at the, when you're, when you come out of it. Yeah. You know, like uh, going into it, you know, at the time I had like all kinds of emotional trauma, baggage issues, stuff like that, which you know, I won't go into that, but it, it I guess, uh, me, the, the way I should say it is that I definitely was not ready for a video game crunch at the time. So <laughs> I was not emotionally prepared for what that would involve. And uh, that, I think that definitely like made me a lot more bitter and jaded toward the industry, you know, for a long time. I, I kind oh, of really? like, yeah, I kind of like have gradually adjusted to practices as they are and, you know, find, finding better and nicer people to work with is it helped immensely. And so you know, that's kind of why I've like made my bed with the digital eclipse folks, because you know, that they're, they're genuinely, you know, well-meaning. And if, if I ever feel compelled to crunch on a project for them, it's because I just, you know, really want to make something work in there. And it's, I feel that like it's a genuine benefit uh, for everybody involved and, and for the end user, as opposed to feeling like I have, some horrible giant oppressive corporation breathing down on me and forcing me to do that work. You know, it's good that you were able to adjust out of that. Cause I do know a few people, actually I know many people that say things like I'll, I'll never work for somebody else again. I'll never have a boss again. And I don't mean narcissistic people that just think they're always right. <laughs> I mean, good people cause yeah. they had too many bad boss experiences and I've been lucky to have every, you know, every part of the spectrum, you know? So uh, I would, I would always happily take orders from somebody I respected, I guess is the, the yeah, best yeah. way I could put it. So Yeah, my career experience is very, like, really heavily there. Um, and I was lucky enough to work for uh, Jack Matthews for a while there. He, he was the technical lead on Metroid Prime. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, so he, he and some other guys later went on to found a place called Armature Studio. Um, he ended up actually leaving Armature uh, before I did, but while I was there with him and he was the CTO, um, 
you know, he offered me just an incredible amount of technical mentorship um, that I, I still value incredibly to this day. And so like, yeah, definitely. Um, it, it took me a long time to finally, <laughs> to, to finally find somebody in the street that I could like really look up to like that. But, uh, you know, thank you, Jack Matthews, if you ever watch this. You know. <laughs> so to jump back, um, how did you go from being a kid to working on a video game? Was there just some lucky right place at the right time? Did you have an in? Like, you know, um, what, what was that like? Mostly uh, mods, I think. So, so you know, from a very early age, um, I, I was kind of getting into programming. I think I was only like 10 or 11 years old when I got my first, you know, learn C++ in 21 days thing at the bookstore. <laughs> Started dabbling in that. And um, so as soon as, uh, you know, I played Doom, basically, I, I was immediately looking for tools and making Doom apps and stuff like that. Uh, I remember like back in the BBS days downloading, uh, what is it, uh, DEU, I think was uh, like the main Doom map making program at the time, getting that on, on a BBS and like being like, oh my God, this opens up an entirely new world for me, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I kind of went from there to like making Quake mods and then uh, making Half-Life mods. And I made uh, a multiplayer deathmatch bot for Half-Life called the Gembots and uh, another multiplayer mod called Scientist Hunt, where basically, you know, the objective was to murder the Half-Life scientists in all kinds of different and crazy ways, like different game modes where you could be a scientist. Uh, it's called Living Fear. You know, you go around and trying to inject people with your needle, uh, trying to basically like blend in with the, the AI scientists. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, you know, working on that stuff, when I, I eventually uh, approached Raven about doing... Uh, uh, multiplayer AI opponents bots uh, for Soldier of Fortune, and they are like, "Oh yeah, Rich Whitehouse, we know who you are because you're familiar with all your Half-Life work." And so that's how I ended up working with those guys. That's awesome. That's very cool. You know, it's good to hear people get noticed for for putting that kind of work in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it, I I often wonder like how that career path would have gone these days because I I, I don't know if it would have even been viable. Um, You'd have gotten sued for working on their intellectual property. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, the practice of releasing open game source SDKs these days seems to have uh, kind of fallen out of fashion. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. So, where, uh, you know, where did you kind of go from there? What other games did you work on over the years? Now, anything notable that, uh, that you oh. want to share? I'm sure you've done tons of notable stuff, but I mean, like, notable to the, you know, the yeah. stuff that you're reflecting on. To, yeah, yeah, no, this is this is a genuine challenge to my uh, recollection capabilities now. Um, <laughs> uh, another like big one, I guess, was Prey. Um, I had mm. the 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 honor and fortune of working on that. Um, uh, so you know, after I left Raven, I got you know crunched into the ground, super burned out. Uh, yeah, kind of an ugly situation there. But um, after that. I, you know, started really working on myself as a programmer, you know, improving my programming skills, you know, kind of, you know, at the same time going through all of my post-trauma stuff, trying to like kind of improve my coping and ability to function as a human being, you might say. And uh, I took like, like probably six months to a year after I left Raven and just focused on that stuff and become became like an actual kind of respectable programmer at that point in my own view, <laughs> kind, kind of like getting there, you know? Um, 
And that's when I decided to apply at Human Head because they were also in Madison, Wisconsin, um, like Raven Software was at the time. And I didn't even have any idea that they were working on, on Prey at the time. I, I'd been following it throughout its development. You know, the original Prey, um, the 3D Realms was working on all uh, the fancy portal technology, you know, always taking time to read through articles whenever I could find them in magazines about that. Pretty hyped up for it. Um, and so when I found out Humanhood was actually kind of like working on what, you know, would eventually be the first actual released version of Prey, um, uh, I, was, I was ecstatic. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I definitely have to get this job now, you know? <laughs> um, That's funny. But yeah, I, I ended up uh, getting to work on uh, some of the portal technology there as well, which was uh, a, a particular honor because I remember, you know, that being such a sticking point in all of the, uh, the media and hype around, uh, you know, the, the previous incarnation of Prey and getting to actually, you know, make that work and, uh, you know, work with the Doom 3 portal tech and make sure, you know, object bits was working properly and everything like that. Um, it just felt like, a, you know, kind of an honor. Um, uh, sentimental for me personally, because, you know, it's like, oh, this is the thing that I was hyped for that I'm actually now getting to implement. That's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, but uh, I have to look up on my game shelf here to see, like, what other notable stuff I've worked <laughs> on. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you know, there there have been a, quite, quite a few games that I've actually managed to ship now in my career. I've legitimately lost track of the count. I think it's probably like, you know, 20, something like that. I'm not entirely sure. Wow. But, um, you know, I could, could go into a whole bunch of bunch of stuff I've worked on in the interim. Um, I didn't actually work on ReCore, um, like its development or the game itself, but uh, they kind of came to me um, like as they were going to ship and they're like, oh my God, we're, we're out of memory. Everything is crashing. And so I got to be that guy on, <laughs> on that one where I, I kind of went in and I'm like, so it was a Unity-based game. Uh, I did a little memory profile and I identified that uh, one of the top things eating up memory for them was just animation. And um, I don't know if Unity has uh, improved the situation since, but at the time they were uh, storing Hermite coefficients for each keyframe in the animation. And that meant that like it, say, instead of four floats to represent a quaternion, um, for each keyframe they had 16 floats to rep represent uh, uh, quaternion hermite coefficients. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the reason that they did that was so that they uh, would not have to calculate those coefficients at runtime. But um, the practical reality of that is that, um, that it, you know, Assuming that you have a reasonably intelligent way of um, calculating those things and not kind of bottlenecking your entire frame logic in the process, um, it's generally unwise to memory bottleneck yourself like that on any of these modern console systems because you're always going to get memory bound before you get ALU bound, which basically means you know you want to actually do more memory independent mathematical operations if you can than you do want to do like. Uh, you know, sizable memory lookups if we're not talking like a single memory lookup table type thing. Uh, not, not to get too off in the weeds here. Um, but anyway, so, so I identified that and I, you know, wrote this nice little system to uh, quantize things based on the error ratios and use half floats and 
a variety of other things. And I, you know, got that memory footprint from like hundreds of megs down to, I think like 90 megs or something. Um, so that was like my, my contribution to record. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is my own selfish curiosity here. So excuse me if I'm crossing anybody's lines. Uh, but are you familiar with YouTube channels like Digital Foundry? Um, where oh, they, yeah. where they, they do, you know, pretty in-depth analysis of games. Yeah, no, I, I, I love those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, John's a friend of mine, you know, just, uh, yeah, nothing but good things to say. But I always kind of wondered what programmers think when they see some of those videos. Is it like, yeah, I know we had to, you know, we were up against the time crunch. Or is it like, how dare you analyze this <laughs> one little thing when there's a whole other game of awesome? Or is it like, you know, does it really just yeah. depend on the day and the mood of the game and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, a lot of programmers are kind of shitty about it, honestly. <laughs> they don't take criticism well. And, uh, you know, there's always, you know, a justification or a reason that somebody has for why they did a thing. But but I'm like, no, you know, there, there's no excuse for some of this stuff. You know, it's good that we are called to task for not making performance good. And, you know, not properly v-syncing, you know making frame stutters, not having good input latency, you know, it's actually, it's really good that an independent party is calling developers to task for that stuff um, because it, it often is something that gets deprioritized in development or not really recognized because, you know, a lot of the time you have games that go through development without uh, a voice like that on the team. And I, I always try to be that voice on games that I actually work on well, I've de definitely witnessed being the only voice there on enough projects that I know that means there are projects with no voice, you know? <laughs> yeah. I guess it would also help if people knew, knew who they were, because I, I can't imagine John Linneman has ever set out to make a video going, Oh, I can't wait to expose a flaw. And, and, you know, I, I, he's yeah. the opposite. He wants to like everything. He goes in with the, like, I, I, I want to see how cool this is. I want to love it. So, yeah. you know, the analysis isn't because they need some clickbait. Look what this programmer did wrong. The analysis is honest coming yeah, from absolutely. a place of, of happiness and love. And that's, that's yeah. what I do with my reviews. And it's pretty funny to see, it's pretty funny to see people's reactions. Like I said something one time about a, a cable that I reviewed, like basically everything's great, um, but let's see how it is a year from now. Cause anybody could make one run of cables, but let's see what happens when they hit run number 5,000. And I got so many people just, how dare you? What a negative <laughs> attitude. And the developer was like, I loved it. That was my favorite part of your review because you nailed it. Anybody could spend all day hand wiring some cables, <laughs> try making 10,000 of them. And it was just, it was yeah. one of those moments. Uh, it, it was great because they, they knew exactly where I was coming from and why I said it. And they paid yeah. enough attention to know my background. I'm not just somebody who flipped on a webcam and started talking. I am somebody who just flipped on a webcam and started talking. But <laughs> I did, you know, I, I did design and development work and contract manufacturing. So it came with actual knowledge behind it. And that's what I feel like, you know, the team and, and good reviews like that are coming from as well. They, they kind of know what they're talking about. And while they might not be at your level of programming, it, you know, they're not just talking out of their ass. They actually understand the things. That yeah, describing. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, they always offer actual empirical evidence of what they're saying. And I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, I think if, if they weren't there, um, games would, you know, be a lot shittier in a lot of cases. You know, I, I think that they're actually a driving influence in making sure that people pay attention to these 
uh, subtle mechanics that actually play a huge role in how a game feels. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side too, when they, when they nail something that you're very proud of, that's got to feel good too. Like, yeah, I did yeah. that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Validation for all your efforts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, is there any other game I, I could talk to you uh, for a very long time about your history, each one of the games that you've worked on, but I just think in the interest of everybody's time, is there any other games that you've worked on that you really, you know, have a, a memory that always sticks and, you know, pops into your mind or, or something that might be notable to the conversation or something like that? You know, anything that, that you're really thinking of now floating around in your head? Hmm. Uh, you know, I... I probably would have had a better answer for this if I were a little like more clear-headed. Um, not not to blame cancer surgery, you know, but anyway, <laughs> blaming cancer surgery actually. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's been kind of like uh, a real mix of ups and downs throughout my career. And one one that comes to mind is the the Vita port of the Unfinished Swan, um, like that. That whole port, I think, was like a crazy technical achievement while also being incredibly stressful to work on um, because it was like, uh, so to give a little bit of history on this, um, The Unfinished Swan is a game that was uh, developed by a studio called Giant Sparrow, I believe, and are um, kind of an indie, indie, indie studio at the time, and it's like, more of a kind of child-oriented game where you start out just painting the world. You know, you start out, it's a pure white world. You're painting the canvas to kind of see where you're going and stuff like that. And uh, it evolves into, you know, some different stuff, different types of worlds, different, you know, mechanics there. But um, it was definitely, you know, they didn't have optimization in mind when they wrote it for the PS3 initially. And um, the, the system to actually do, like, those paint splats was, um, you know, uh, code that was all running on the, you know, the cell processor, the PS3 SPUs, and uh, all pretty tailored for that. And they come up with um, kind of a um, hash grid uh, type system for determining collisions for paintballs and stuff like that. And so when I ported that thing to the Vita, um, it was just, you know, chugging along horrible performance, having all that code running in C. And I ended up actually like totally revamping the underlying systems for that stuff i made like a new octree based solution for the collision and you know went went to just insane depths to um get all that stuff you know really you're just running fast blazing fast on the vita never missing the frame and i uh on the note of you know worrying about vsync and all that i just went to just and i know i knew at the time you know the target audience for this game is probably not going to care but I just went to just insane depths of, um, you know, having, you know, very careful tracking of V-Syncs. If it even missed one V-Sync on time, you know, it would print a red error on the screen for QA testing and say, here's, you know, the interval of this frame, you know, and I would you know, go in, actually profile what happened here, make sure, you know. And so that entire game is just pure solid, you know, not dropping a single frame, super optimized, insane experience. And so after it was released, um, I was sitting on the couch next to Jack Matthews and we we're watching a stream of them playing uh, the PS4 and Vita versions. And one of the developers was like, he, 
he fired a paint split on this entire like complex geometry castle that even on the PS3 version with Chunk is just you know instantaneous, no no hitch whatsoever. And it's like, wow, they must have really optimized that. Like, <laughs> I sure did. I sure did. <laughs> oh, that is absolutely awesome. <laughs> Damn. Well, Rich, thanks so much for your time. It was great getting to know you here. I, I hope that this is the first of, of many uh, interviews. I hope we can go back and, you know, and just have another chat, talk about some of the other games you've worked on. You know, continue. I'll continue updating people to your progress for the Jaguar emulator, and you know, once again, the Patreon account because, you know, uh, I think a lot of people are afraid uh, or or feel uncomfortable self promoting, and I have no problem promoting you, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> it forget is, if you're a fan of Rich's awkward. work to sign up for the Patreon. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, my friend. I, I really appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, we'll. Uh, we'll leave links in the description to where everybody can find you and your work and, and you know, anything else like that. But uh, this was very cool. And you know, please keep doing what you're doing.